Dr. Andrew Reynolds, you are a professor of political science at UNC Chapel Hill. And uh, the reason I'm calling is your new column. You wrote this new column, North Carolina is no longer classified as a democracy, or rather that's the old column. And you have a follow-up, NC's democracy is much worse now than at the start of 2017. So let's start with that first column, North Carolina is no longer classified as a democracy. What were the arguments you made in that article? Well, that article was based on what was happening in 2016. So we looked at the election quality, you know, the whole game around the elections of setting up district lines and allowing people to vote and um, access to polling on the day. And we sort of surveyed the quality of the elections in a sort of nonpartisan way uh, and found that it was really lacking. I mean, democracy competition had been sucked out of the system. So the election moment of 2016 uh, seemed really flawed. And if you added to that some of the other things that were happening in the legislature, um, sort of power grabs, uh, sort of uh, suspending some of the separation of powers, uh, some of the pernicious attacks upon North Carolinian citizens because of how they were born, it seemed like you know, we were getting a little complacent because Carolina was really atrophying in its democratic vibrancy. You know, competition wasn't there. Uh, politicians were sort of not playing the democratic game. So the argument was that Carolina, by all measurements, had sort of fallen to a point where it wasn't a full functioning democracy. Jeff Tiberi, WUNC Capital reporter, here with us as well. And Jeff, when we started speaking with Dr. Reynolds, uh, we were talking about his original column, North Carolina is no longer classified as a democracy. And he was describing that column. And Dr. Reynolds, I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned in your new column where you kind of updated us, you said that, you know, there was some backlash to that column such that you actually needed campus security. Can you tell us about that? The original article in the News Observer was, you know, went viral, was shared around the world and sort of reached about 10 million accounts. Got a lot of feedback, a lot of it positive, but also some negative and some more sort of hostile negative, uh, a few death threats and uh, a couple of phone messages that led campus police to uh, escort me to classes early on. They were a little bit more concerned than perhaps I was. I spent my life working in war zones, so I didn't expect to be uh, under protection in Chapel Hill. So there was a degree of uh, pushback um, because the article was shared so widely. What do you think about the criticisms of the piece where people said, you know, this is a little bit hyperbolic, uh, it's a bit overstating things? Well, I think the reality is that what I said in the piece was that North Carolina's democracy was on a trajectory to sort of authoritarianism. We were in a car. We were going in the wrong direction. We were heading towards a cliff because nothing was improving the state of democracy. And so the article was supposed to say, we need to think about this, not be complacent, turn the car around. And I think uh, what's happened over the last year has proven that to be true, that saying that democracy has been sucked out of North Carolina's state system is not hyperbolic. It's, it's just measurable factual evidence today. So I think maybe the tone of the piece was a little sensational, 
but it got people's attention, and now we're talking about democratic reform. Yeah, and now you note that things haven't gotten better. They've actually gotten worse in some respects, and you've highlighted a few things in your article. Partisan gerrymandering, changes to the judiciary, secretive bills, and also Confederate statues, things like that, where the positions have been what I would think that you might consider to be extreme on the part of legislators. But uh, talk a little bit about what you've seen in the past year. And I know that Jeff can weigh in a little bit on this as well, because we're going to be talking about the current court rulings, which have a lot to do with what's been playing out. Yeah, so I think if you look at the last year, the chief flaws of the system right now, or the chief problem areas, have worsened. So if we were, you know, if we're saying that districting, the lack of competition in the Senate and House races um, is is sort of an embedded cause of our problems, none of that has been improved. I mean, the legislature has not responded to court uh, rulings. Um, Even the special master, in my mind, the plan doesn't really rectify the situation. It's a band-aid over a much larger wound. So that's not been improved. And no one in the legislature is really taking on the issue. Um, The other thing that worries me most is that the one check on egregious abuse of power in North Carolina today are the courts. The courts have stopped the legislature uh, in undemocratic activities. So what is the legislature doing? It is taking on the courts and trying to usurp some of their power and has a raft of bills that try and reduce the power of the legislature, of the judiciary to check what the General Assembly is doing. And I think that's really worrying when the one sort of area of of check is being uh, eaten away at slowly. Jeff, you might be able to weigh in on this. You've been following the potential changes to the judiciary. We've had some go through. We've had others kind of been stymied a little bit. Um, What's been going on the past few weeks with the attempt to draw new districts for judges and other changes, such as doing away with judicial elections altogether? Well, (laughs) I think as Professor Reynolds notes, a lot of this is uh, sitting in the courts right now. And there, some of what's happened recently has just been a waiting game. Um, There are a number of legal challenges right now that we don't have uh, really a conclusion to. There's a legislative uh, gerrymandering issue that hasn't quite reached the finish line through the court system. There is a congressional gerrymandering issue, uh, the first being racial, the second being partisan, that hasn't quite reached the the end in the court system. Um, there are court challenges that pertain to the ethics and elections board, which the, the legislature tried to merge a year ago. That has effectively been debunked, but there hasn't been a remedy issued in that case. There's another case that's going to um, be bef- before judges again uh, on Wednesday of this week that deals with uh, the DPI, Department of Public Instruction, and the legislature and the usurping of power there. And then let's get back into the judiciary. There's also this question of judicial elections, because some of your listeners may remember that what lawmakers did last fall in October was they canceled judicial primaries for 2018. Now, a federal judge uh, ruled that they couldn't do that, at least not with all of the uh, judicial primaries. So some of them, for the time being, we think are going to be implemented again. But again, we're not quite at the finish line on that. So there could be another step in that process. So it's all over the place. And if it sounds and feels like chaos and your head spinning a little bit, 
that is how it feels for us uh, here in the legislature and I think for some of the lawmakers. And I tend to think that some of that is by design. And, you know, we, we see this at the federal level. We've seen this in other states. Chaos is, is part of the strategy at this point, specific to uh, changes to the judiciary. I, I mean, I think in the rhetoric and in the politics, what we see this in North Carolina, we see it across the country. There is a, a politicizing of judges and of the judiciary and, and really trying to attack the credibility of those outlets and of those entities. Now, I, I'm not weighing in one way or the other on that, but that's part of the, the rhetoric and the politics of it. From a policy standpoint, from more of those tangible, substantive changes that you can, can reach out and touch, uh, there's, you know, uh, about a year, year and a half ago, uh, they put partisan labels back into judicial races. North Carolina was the first state to do that, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, about a century. Um, they reduced the Court of Appeals. Um, they reduced it from 15 to 12 seats. That's something that's going to take place over time. And then some of the bigger judicial reforms. And we should pause here and note that there are a lot of people who say judicial reforms are needed in North Carolina because there hasn't really been any, any significant change to the um, the framework of it in about 60 years. But those changes, and those could take on, I mean, it could be redistricting, it could, and that's the big one, but there could be uh, other iterations or other offshoots of it. There isn't consensus on it. So getting back to your question of what's happened here in recent weeks, um, not much is really the, the honest answer. We, we've seen um, new versions of maps as it pertains to judicial redistricting, but some smart folks have, have pointed out that there are, are likely legal challenges to follow if those maps were to be implemented. So there haven't been changes on, on judicial redistricting at this point. Um, and the other bigger question, bigger possible policy change could come in the way of a, a, a voter referendum. And effectively what that would be is lawmakers would say uh, – lawmakers would approve a proposed constitutional amendment. And in turn, in effect, that would leave it up to the 10 million folks in North Carolina, whatever, 6.7 million registered voters, um, to decide whether or not they want to give up their right to elect judges in this state. Not every ju- not every state elects judges, but in North Carolina, of course, we do. Um, and turn it over to a merit-based system where there would be some sort, we don't know the details of it, but some sort of system where the legislature would appoint or um, and or the governor w- would, would decide um, and, and, you know, choose who the judges are in this state. So I don't mean to sound like I'm all over the place, but I'm all over the place because that's what it's like right now. But there was also another ruling regarding the makeup of the state elections board. And so Roy Cooper won that lawsuit and it basically eliminated the merging yeah. of the state ethics and elections board. So we don't right. even have an elections board right now to take on all these confusing changes currently. Correct. <laughs> All right. I, I, my simple mind likes to think about these things in uh, the, the nature of the court systems being like a ladder. So the top step of, say, a six foot step ladder is the state Supreme Court. And then a step below that is the state appellate court. So the state Supreme Court ruled, I believe, 4-3 in favor of Cooper's claims that this altering of the the state elections board, which had been a five-member board to reflect the governor's party, uh, and legislature moved to change that to an eight-member board that combined ethics and elections. State Supreme Court ruled that that was not okay. However, they didn't say, here's what now, therefore, must happen. They kicked it back to the lower court, a step down the ladder, if you will, for a remedy. So we're waiting on that remedy. And I am not even going to go ahead and, and make any kind of guesses as to, to what that may be. 
in terms of when, we're probably not going to get it right away. You know, the governor, understandably, wants to he wanted to win uh, this lawsuit uh, and he wants to seat this board of elections, this this five member board. But it doesn't based on my understanding, it doesn't appear as though he's going to be able to do that in short order. Dr. Reynolds, are you hopeful, you know, with the recent rulings that we've seen, for instance, just yesterday, the Supreme Court refused to get involved in the Pennsylvania congressional elections, state ruling, meaning that those congressional districts are going to have to be redrawn. Do you think that pretends a favorable ruling as far as gerrymandering goes in North Carolina? Well, I mean, I'm hopeful uh, on a sort of short term level, uh, but I'm less hopeful over the longer term, because as I mentioned earlier, I think that even with some degree of redistricting um, that is not quite as partisan as the last few decades have been, that's still not going to dramatically change the lack of competition, the gerrymandering within the system. Um, it basically, the, the rules of the game mean that it's exceptionally difficult for a minority opposition party to come back up and retake the House and the Senate in any state, but especially in North Carolina, because of the way the districts have been, been drawn. And any remedy that is on the table right now does not fundamentally alter that unequal game. So I don't think the Democrats, even in a very good year, are going to take back the House and Senate in 2018 or 20, or even, you know, in subsequent years. And the trouble is that districting again happens in 2020, and so whoever's in control of the legislature will get to redraw the lines again then. And I think we're stuck in a very long-term sort of mire of um, of just manipulating boundaries to retain power. Um, and even some of these judicial uh, rulings, if they stand, aren't going to fundamentally change that. So I think we need a big reformation of what our democracy is in North Carolina. We need a much broader uh, discussion about what to do. What do you see as some potential solutions to the problem? You know, one of the things is I think we have seen less and less space for people to meet and discuss, for empathy sort of to be uh, built between different communities. I think that over time, we've become much more tribal, both on Democrat and Republican lines, but also in the lines of where we go, what we do, what we play, where we sing, where we go to church. The, the divides in American society and in North Carolina society have seen um, a much smaller space for people to get together and, and work out their differences in a practical and, and, and building way. I mean, a lot of the HB2 and the bathroom bill um, uh, catastrophe, the crisis, was driven by a lack of empathy for a community that nobody knew. I mean, people don't know trans and gender variant North Carolinians, despite the fact that we have tens of thousands of people who do identify that way here. And when you don't know people, you just don't have empathy for their situation, and it's much easier to demonize them. So I think that the way we begin to rectify this is to start having much more deep conversations across the aisle, across boundaries. You know, I went and had lunch with Art Pope last year, and, you know, it's two worlds that really don't speak to each other. University of North Carolina faculty and the Pope Foundation don't really have a lot of time for each other, but when you go down and sit down and talk to people, you begin to understand that you do have some areas in common. You know, Art Pope is an advocate of nonpartisan districting commissions because he actually sees the longer game for Republicans in North Carolina. I think 
they aren't quick fixes to this, but we do need to do something because we're really heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, and I saw a tweet this morning, or I think it was actually last night, from Representative Chuck McGrady, who has always been in favor of independent redistricting, but he sort of reiterated that on Twitter this morning. So there is some appetite among at least some Republicans to do something that could potentially lessen their party's power, even if it's for the greater good. Well, and it's not just for the greater good. I mean, you know, the trouble is the politics the world over happens on a very short time span. And and Jeff, I know, deals with this. You know, it's an immediate news cycle. But if you look at the longer time span in North Carolina, if North Carolina becomes browner, more Latino, more um, expatriates moving over here and voters coming in from other parts of the country. If North Carolina becomes more democratic over the next decade, which is quite plausible, Latinos start to vote in higher numbers, African-Americans vote for Democrats in higher numbers, then what happens is that eventually the Republicans lose the state house. And if the Republicans lose the state house under the current rules of the game, I have no doubt that the Democrats will do to the Republicans what the Republicans have done to the Democrats over the last decade. And so a Republican actually would be best served by bringing in nonpartisan districting commissions because it means that there's more competition in the system. You can throw your ideas out there and get people to respond to them either positively or negatively. I actually think the longer game makes sense for the Republicans to move to nonpartisan districting and make the system more competitive. Dr. Reynolds, have you gotten similar feedback this time around with your latest column, which I think has been out for just several days now? I mean, uh, some feedback and, and uh, a number of positive uh, responses again, and people who applaud that. Um, I have to say, I mean, you know, the magnitude is tiny compared to the feedback of uh, the first piece. Um, and I think that first piece just caught a moment in time. It, it it just accidentally hit a moment when people were very eager to just, you know, uh, articulate their unease about what was happening in North Carolina. I mean, the thing that does worry me is that there is some complacency now in the system. Very little has changed. If anything, North Carolina has got worse. And we don't have the level of sort of outrage or enthusiasm for change that we might have. I mean, Moral Monday is still going strong. Many people are investigating this, but we've still seen no substantial change in the General Assembly in their attitudes. I mean, I think the Republicans in the General Assembly still think they can hold on to power. Um, They've been proven to be correct on that so far, and they're still playing that game. One of the things I, I do hear from when, when I chat with Republican operatives, GOP operatives, and it strikes me as a, as a, as a fair point, and I, let me back up a second. I, I hear this from both Republicans and Democrats, but the notion that gerrymandering is, you know, the be-all, end-all issue for, for Democrats in this, you know, this power race, I don't think is entirely fair. But the point that I hear from from actually both sides is that, you know, the North Carolina Constitution states when drawing maps and I'm oversimplifying here, I'm not an attorney. You have to make an effort, a concerted effort to keep counties whole. So Wake County, Mecklenburg County, Person County, Onslow County, whatever it is, you have to do your best to not slice it into a pizza, so to speak. And one of the 
concerns for Democrats moving forward is so many of the folks who vote blue are concentrated in these urban areas that just play it out for a second for for conversation's sake. Let's say Democrats take back the North Carolina House in 2020. Well, how would they draw maps that are most advantageous to them? Think of Wake or Mecklenburg County. You'd almost have to slice it up like a pizza and you'd cut it into sixth or eighth and you don't you dip into, you know, Johnston County and, and Sampson or person like you're going to try to sneak into other territories to go capture some of those Republican voters to dilute conservative votes. But you can't do that. And it leaves you wide open to a legal challenge. So, you know, one of the conversations I do have or that I hear from people uh, is just this notion of how difficult it's going to be for Democrats when or if they come back into power to draw maps that are particularly advantageous for them that are also going to pass muster in the courts. Well, at the end of the day, I mean, maybe I'm a little bit more pessimistic, but I think the science of sort of targeted partisan districting has become so sophisticated that I would not be surprised if a party was able to do enough to protect their majorities um, and shore up their majorities, despite the fact that the foundation, the, the, the building blocks were a little bit tougher to do. I think the fact that you can go down to census tracts, that you can move people around, and also you can play around with those county boundaries to some degree. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think the Democrats ever were as good at gerrymandering as the Republicans have been over the last six years here. Um, but they still had a certain expertise and they still did it to some extent. So, I mean, I think that um, it's not the whole game. I think it's one part of the foundation that makes everything else more difficult. But I think there's a whole bunch of other issues that we need to address and separation of powers, um, judges, the judicial issues, and just generally the way in which we set up our our political system here. Um, but but I agree with you that it may be more difficult for the Democrats to gerrymander the Republicans out of existence, but I think they can still probably do quite a lot to shore up their majorities if they get a majority. All right. Well, Dr. Reynolds, I really appreciate you stopping by. Hey, no problem. All right. Just you and me, Jeff. Jeff, the legislature is supposed to be back in session Wednesday. Do we have any idea what they're going to do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think some of it sincerely does depend on some of these court rulings. Are they going to what happens with legislative redistricting, uh, the judicial primary, the election and ethics board? Is there anything else that happens that could affect their work? That's one kind of variable and unknown behind door number one. Uh, door number two is there's this class size issue, and there's been a mandate that deals with um, maximizing class sizes in, uh, in I believe it's K through three. There's long been a push from a lot of school districts and also, uh, you know, the governor's on board with this now saying, you know, we, we've got to fix this class size issue because there's going to be an issue in terms of funding specialty teachers, music teachers and phys ed teachers and, and the like. Um, so the, the class size issue is something that could uh, get some attention in, in the days to come. Um uh, but I, I don't know beyond that. I mean, we're, we're hearing various things, um, but nothing at this point that feels firm or strong enough to say, oh, yeah, this is definitely what they're going to be dealing with when they come back Thursday or Friday. Jeff, we learned some interesting information from campaign finance reports last week. One name really stood out. That was Greg Lindbergh. He's over there in your neck of the woods over in Durham. Uh, he owns a private investment firm, Eli Global, and he is given a lot of money. What can you tell me about Lindbergh? Durham businessman, 890000 to uh, the Republican Party in 2017. 
a cool million to support Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest via a super PAC. And uh, then on top of that, $1.4 million to the Republican Council of State Committee, which is also a, a forest organization that he set up because he's, he's part of the Council of State. Uh, that's like $3.5 million right there. That, that, that's big money. Election a- experts say or election uh, financial election folks say that this is legal practice. Uh, of course, you know, I, let's look at it from both sides. That's my job. That's the, that's the reporter, right? Need to be as objective as possible. On one hand, this is somebody who's exercising free speech and wants to play a part in the political process. Uh, that's all he's doing, of course. And on the other side, and I'm, I'm a cynic. I'm a, I'm a journalist. It's like, all right, well, what, three and a half million dollars? That, that, ought, to, that ought to grant you some, some decent access or influence or, uh, you know, uh, an increased voice in, uh, in what has, what, what's playing out politically. What his specific intentions are, I mean, whether he's he's angling for for pro-business policies, for for things that are going to help him as an entrepreneur, I I do not know at this point. Um, But that's a lot of money. It seems as though for the most part it is being routed toward Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who is uh, he's a he's a conservative. He's a religious conservative. He's been the lieutenant governor. This is, I believe, his second term. It's widely expected that he's going to run for governor in 2020, at least in the the Republican primary. We'll see if he can emerge from that. But he's going to try to unseat Governor Cooper. So, yeah, Lindbergh's an interesting player, and I don't know a ton about him. Dr. Reynolds had mentioned Art Pope earlier. Now, we know Art Pope as being a financier of Republican causes around North Carolina, probably the prime financier. So is Lindbergh's donations, you know, we're talking three and a half million now, uh, is that unprecedented or is that basically on the pace of an art pope? That's a good question. I, I think in in the post-Citizens United era that we're in, it is difficult to track all of the money that people give. Um, art Pope has given millions of dollars to politics. He's also, you know, put a lot of money in the political spectrum through the John Locke Foundation, through the Civitas organization, uh, and through other channels. He has, and I'm not remembering the number off the top of my head, but there was a a long New Yorker profile about him probably seven or eight years ago now. And I want to say the figure they put in there was something like 12 or $13 million that he had, he had put into North Carolina politics. Now he, he refuted that. He said that was high. Is it on the pace of a Pope? It, It certainly catches your attention. And Pope was the first person it made me think of. So perhaps, perhaps that's one way to answer it. Yeah. Now, speaking of Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, he received some other donations that raised eyebrows and they are from pastors at a very controversial church out here in western North Carolina. They're located in Spindale called Word of Faith. Uh, he received six $100 contributions from pastors there, including the leader of that group, Jane Whaley. And this group has been documented by the Associated Press as having a number of alleged abuses, including slave labor, uh, really anti-gay behavior, very abusive verbal, physical abuse of congregants. Is this something that could come back to hurt the lieutenant governor if he is to run for governor? What he do you said think? Six one hundred dollar donations. Yeah, yes. so we're talking pretty small numbers here. Yeah, anything could hurt a, a, a politician, right? I mean, in theory, anything could hurt. You've got to control the message. If you're a politician, money can come in from anywhere. We will see if there is pressure that mounts here, and/or if he returns any of these checks. Sometimes that happens, right? Symbolically, sometimes a candidate, Republican, Democrat, we've seen this from from men and women, both parties. Uh, they'll say, "Oh, you know, I'm not so, I'm not not great with that donation," and they'll send money back. I don't know if that's going to happen here or not. 
I mean, we were just talking about Lindbergh and three and a half million dollars. So six hundred bucks seems like peanuts, and relatively speaking, it is. I, I wouldn't make a ton out of six one hundred dollar donations. You know, if these are six ten thousand dollar donations, or if this is uh, you know more of an arm or, or, or a leg of his candidacy, then I think other questions naturally start to emerge. Um, but to me, one of the I guess the morsels that you could take from this is one of the inherent challenges for Dan Forrest in not necessarily winning a primary, but winning a general election, because he is a staunch, staunch religious conservative. He was one of the most vocal defenders of House Bill 2. And as we've seen, that plays well to some people in this state, specifically a, a base and a religious base. Can Dan Forrest emerge from a primary? Absolutely. Can he win a general election? Possibly. But uh, when I talk to Republicans, their fear is that He's already running too far to the right, so to speak, that when general election time comes, they have concerns about him winning in a statewide race. It's going to be much more purple. And I think a lot of people that um, would have some trepidation over over word of faith. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about some of your work now, Jeff. Uh, You had a great interview with the governor, Roy Cooper, recently. You sat down with him along with your fellow reporter, Jason DeBruin. And I believe you spent several days with the governor. What can you tell me about that? Last week, WNC ran a series uh, about the opioid epidemic uh, in North Carolina and just trying to, you know, do several pieces looking at the various elements of this, the, the political side of it, the naloxone side of it. That's the OP, EpiPen, so to speak, this OP, opioid reversal agent that uh, the state has really tried to make an effort to arm law enforcement agencies and first responders and, and healthcare folks with the data behind it. This is obviously a huge issue, and I think uh, people are very familiar with that. What the governor has tried to do is, is he's really tried to make this a, a priority of his first term in office. Obviously, there are things like taxes and education and the economy, which are, I think, probably going to always drive the day in politics. But this is right up in maybe that 1A tier or, or that second tier. Um, he was on uh, President Trump's commission to deal with opioid, uh, the opioid crisis. He you know, released a, a plan last summer to try to get at and curb some of the issues that North Carolina has been seeing. And then more recently, he made half a dozen stops across the state. And each kind of had a, a a different twist or a slightly different feel to it. For example, in Wilmington, he brought together um, sheriffs and police officers and, and uh, medical folks, first responders, law enforcement, um, but also, you know, uh, clinicians. Sat down with him at a roundtable for, for an hour. I mean, it was maybe more than an hour. It might have been a 90-minute uh, roundtable. In High Point, he, uh, he he did a ride-along with EMS, did a tour of an EMS station, did a ride-along, and um, one of the, the EMS workers literally took took apart, uh, you know, one of their backpacks that they use when they've uh, they've got all of all of the various tools when they're trying to revive somebody and walk the governor through through all of the different things they do. Anyway, this all is to say uh, this has been a priority for Cooper um, to try to work on the, the politics of it, the policy of it. He was part of this this commission at the federal level. They made recommendations to Congress. Congress has not yet uh, not yet acted on any of the, the recommendations from a bipartisan commission. And when we sat down with Cooper last week, I did ask him about that. Uh, and he said that he doesn't think they've acted in part because Speaker Ryan and President Trump are preparing to, to cut domestic funding and who knows if there's going to be appropriations available for uh, the, the the kinds of, excuse me, reforms and programs that they recommended to deal with the opiate issue. 
I see. Okay. So probably a pretty informative uh, trip. What did you do? Did you accompany him on several of these stops? Is that that what you did? Yeah, yeah. Jason and I uh, both spent, uh, we, we made three stops with the governor. Um, I was with him in High Point, you know, different day in Wilmington, and then in Durham. He uh, he toured, a, uh, a, I think, a pretty neat facility. Um, it's Trosa, uh, and, and Trosa is in, the, is in the business of helping people get back on their feet. Um, folks who have, have dealt with um, addiction and dealt with uh, um, drug dependencies. It's I, I don't know if you have a Trosa presence out in Western North Carolina. I'm just not remembering. But yeah, we each spent some time with the governor and then we sat down with him um, afterward. And uh, I, I think this is something that's not going away, uh, unfortunately, anytime soon. And there are going to be continued discussions between the legislature, between the governor, also the federal government, uh, and all of those entities I mentioned, the, the, the local entities, law enforcement, elected officials, medical folks, about what to do and how to do it. Uh, and, and just I would note, I mean, this came up in w- one of the stories we did, the story I did as part of this, this series uh, on our website. Two of the more controversial things um, – are, are needle exchange programs and medical marijuana. And a lot of folks, and I, I talked to plenty of Republicans who said, yeah, needle exchange programs, are they're, they're viable and there's data to support them. Uh, but there, there are some political concerns about you know, using state funds for needle exchange programs to enhance those. Uh, and then there's there's this medical marijuana issue. And uh, there's some data to, to point to states that have legalized medical marijuana there's been a drop in opioid overdose deaths by like 20 to 25 percent. So that's a you know, that that's that's a, a helpful statistic. Right. I mean, marijuana is less addictive than opioids. We know this. But at the same time, if you're talking about lawmakers who have to run, there are potentially electoral consequences if you're going to uh, go ahead and give a thumbs up to something like medical marijuana. So I, I don't think the state is quite ready for that. But I do think the conversation is starting to starting to uh, <laughs> develop and perhaps will percolate at some point. Yeah, we had several reports actually recently. Uh, Mike Clampett, one of our Western North Carolina lawmakers, was holding a series of town halls and medical marijuana came up. Uh, he was giving sort of a personal anecdote about his father who lives in Oregon uh, using medical marijuana to alleviate pain. And uh, so he kind of, you know, he said, you know, uh, this could be something that happens in the next three to five years, he predicted, for the North Carolina legislature. Also, regarding needle exchange programs, yeah. we've got those now legal for the first time, I think for the past year or two. Asheville had, I believe, the first one in the state, the needle exchange program of Asheville, which was sort of running underground for a while and now has the, the legal weight behind it. So a lot of stuff going on with that. And I know that when I talked to them recently, they told me that they were running out of needles. So the demand is really there. They may need more funding to kind of keep up with that demand because this problem, as I know you are well aware as you've been covering it, is a, a booming problem. You know, this is the nature of politics. The, these things move slowly. They're not going to come. I mean, you has, we, were, we were talking a few minutes ago about what are they going to do this week? They're not going to come in and legalize medical marijuana this week. I can. I mean, I, I would I, I am very confident in that um, things move slowly in politics. And this is one of, uh, you know, the, the long term. Con- this is a marathon conversation. And I, I, I would tend to agree with that assessment. Three to five years, medical marijuana in uh, North Carolina. That that certainly seems plausible. All right. Well, Jeff, I know the series is called Hitting Home, the Opioid Crisis in North Carolina, and our listeners can check that out at WUNC.org. Jeff, anything we didn't cover that you think we should? 
Jeremy, I, I would leave you with this. Uh, I got a letter this week from Darren Jackson, uh, who's uh, the House Minority Leader, Democrat from Wake County. It's a letter addressed to uh, North Carolina House Speaker Tim Moore and also Paul Coble. And it's kind of a follow-up to some of the, the sexual harassment stories that emerged about the legislature and also from a recent uh, retreat that the Democratic Caucus went on. Uh, and it was, I, I, I mean, I, I would describe it in tone or tenor as uh, not necessarily a demanding letter or or a confrontational letter, but it's a letter about what he thinks the legislature, the General Assembly needs to do moving forward as it pertains to sexual harassment claims. Um, and he, he calls for the creation of a fair and independent investigatory process. Uh, also, calls for creation of a General Assembly workplace harassment policy, which I think we're going to hear uh, some folks on the right say, well, that already exists. Um, he might not like the one they have, but they, they, they do have um, kind of a, a they, they do have a policy in place. Uh, and Jackson also, the third thing he asked, he, he said in the letter, specifically, I suggest one, two, and three. The other thing is uh, the creation of a legislator and staff training program to provide resources and information that will help prevent future problems. So, you know, this letter, I, I think, is just kind of the, the next um, next marker in the road as we continue to kind of follow this sexual harassment issue at large and also within the uh, within the General Assembly. And uh, no word. Yeah, I mean, literally, uh, you know, this has all been last last few hours. So I, I don't I don't know what the response will be from the speaker or from Mr. Coble, but we'll uh, we'll we'll find out. And that's a story that you've been following, of course. Uh, what sort of feedback did you get from your story about sexual harassment? You know, not a ton. I actually I was a little surprised that there wasn't more. Um, I think it's a dicey issue. I think that uh, a lot of what came out of my story, the two new revelations, or the two not before gone public revelations, were from uh, were from a while ago. And uh, you know, the the realist in me says sexual harassment, potentially sexual assaults, they they continue to go on. Um, but we haven't heard anything that is of a, a, a recent. Um, or, or that's a recent memory. Um, so I, I didn't hear a ton. I, I mean, I not many com- complaints. You're always going to get some complaints if you're doing good stories. So certainly a couple complaints. But uh, for the most part, it was well received. And uh, the one thing I, I do say to everybody is that I think this is uh, this is not a, a, an R or a D problem. Um, this is a power problem. And, and this, I mean, as we've seen, right? This isn't just politics. This, is, this unfortunately. You know, the light's been, been shown on our industry. The media's been terrible. I mean, public public media, we've had, we've had a lot of crappy stories about public radio, and mm-hmm. that, that stinks, to, stinks to hear, stinks to read. Um, but, you know, uh, media, politics, and uh, I'm missing another big one, uh, entertainment. I mean, it, it, it seems to know no bounds. So I think we're, um, we're going to continue to follow this one for a while. All right. Well, Jeff Tiberi, always great to talk to you. Always a treat. Thanks for letting me ramble.